A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Marty Levine. Marty is an expert in B2B commercial strategies and negotiations. He spent 37 years at ExxonMobil and has recently retired. And Marty brings a wealth of commercial experience in both sales and marketing, as well as procurement. Marty and I actually met across the negotiating table just a few years ago, okay, maybe it was been a decade or more, when he was with Univation and doing licensing and I was setting up the polyethylene business for Shell and negotiating license agreements. So I know Marty's insights and his expertise well, and I think we're going to have a great conversation. Marty, welcome to The Chemical Show. Victoria, thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. I think you're doing a great thing with this show. I think you really pull out some very interesting insights and just personal stories that people can grab onto and be inspired by. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're, I'm hoping to get inspired and I, I know that people are going to get inspired by you, Marty. So let's, you know, what's your origin story? What brought you into the world of chemicals and what brought you to ExxonMobil? You know, I always tell people I have a kind of a, a boring resume. I've, I really had two jobs in my life. I worked in a lumber yard and I worked for ExxonMobil for 37 years. So, you know, I got out of college, uh, Georgia Tech with a civil engineering degree and, you know, did engineering things in uh, Exxon's uh, facility in Baytown. And I guess I must have caught the eye of one of our sales directors at the time, and I determined I could probably do sales. So I went into initial sales roles and really traveling, a lot of travel. I was back when you did you know, seven segments a week on an airplane. I was terrible at sales. I didn't want to do it. I just, how did I get stuck with this thing? But it gradually over time, I stuck with it. I got better. And at some point in time, I decided, you know what? I really like being at the tip of the spear, like where the money comes in, where the product goes out. And I really enjoyed those jobs. And one thing I also determined, and I've done management jobs before in the company in my career, but I really like the individual contributor role, frankly, just enjoyed that. And so I spent most of my career doing those things. So, you know, I went on in various sales roles, uh, big territories, key accounts, uh, did some sales management, uh, dealt with pretty much every market you could think of in the polymers industry, really just everything. Did some marketing management, did some market development work, did licensing when I met you for the first time. And then finally wound up in procurement. So it gave me kind of an interesting perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You've been in commercial roles a long time. What's different today versus when you started? What do you, I mean, you've had the opportunity to see probably an entire evolution across the industry and across the way business is done. What's striking to you about that? Well, gosh, I mean, so much has changed. You know, when I got into commercial roles back in the late 80s, I mean, there was no internet, right? Obviously, technology has changed a lot. I used to lug around when I would travel, like 20 pounds of computer, bag phone, recorder. I had a backpack. It was so much crap to carry around. And now, you know, pretty much everything's on my phone. So obviously, technology has changed a lot. I mean, I remember when I saw the first fax machine, I was like, wow, this is as far as it can ever go. And now you can't even find a fax machine. 
Yeah, they don't even exist anymore. People don't know what they even are. People don't know what floppy disks are either anymore. But you go to the, you get off an airplane, you go to the airport, you'd run down the jetway and get out to the bank of phones out there, right? Because all the salespeople are trying to grab all the phones. The one thing that's changed is really the amount of information that's available. It used to be, you know, you get these reports on the industry, they were mailed to you once a month or once a week. And now there's so much information that's continuously available. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not right because it's just put together so quickly. It hasn't really been vetted very well. So I think you have so much information you have to sort of triangulate to, to make sure you get to the truth. Has it made it better or worse? What, I mean, from your perspective, is it easier? You know, it's a blessing and a curse. You have to make sure that the information you're getting is right. You have to. I always say you have to develop information into insight that drives action. If you're not trying to drive action from information, and trying to get insight, you're just it's just kind of a hobby. So it definitely it's a blessing and a curse because you have it so much more. It's a curse in that you have to make sure it's right. And it's also true that if you're not using it, you can be sure your competition is. So you have to make sure you're availing yourself to, to stay up to date uh, relative to your competition. I think anything else can change is how we, you know, how we contact people. You used to all be, you know, over the phone or face to face, right? Now, you know, we've gotten to where we're more comfortable with non- face-to-face stuff. We're texting, we're emailing, et cetera. But that's changed. I mean, there are no more three martini lunches, for instance, like there were back in the back in the day when I got started. The other thing's changed in the 90s that a lot of people now maybe don't recognize is the whole business-to-business marketing science, in a sense, was developed. It didn't really exist much before then. And so the whole notion of value selling, I really came of age in the 90s. And there were classes and things that we went to to talk about this new science that was around. Yeah. So moving to value versus just a pure transactional. Yeah. Yeah. It, this this whole notion of, well, you know, people had consumer marketing forever, right? You know, selling coffee and cigarettes and whatever else. But the business marketing really came to life, I would say, in the 90s. You know, finally, Victoria, you know, the other thing that's really changed is now there are university degrees you can get in supply chain, in selling. Even the University of Houston has a selling program. So these programs didn't exist, you know, back uh, 25, 30 years ago. That's some changes, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was all on-the-job training, right? Bringing people in and, and training them up in their way. You know, you talk about the fact of B2B marketing not existing really until the 90s when we think about it from a chemicals perspective and, and B2B industrials more broadly. I would say there's still a certain amount of immaturity across many companies today in B2B marketing and value selling and that there's a reliance still on the old pick up the phone. If you know who I am and I know who you are, we can do business together. I mean, we're seeing it right now, just kind of this change. And I would say we're even at a tipping point, certainly when we think about what's needed from a commercial perspective, from a marketing perspective to meet the requirements of today and frankly, to meet the requirements of the next generation and how they are willing to work and what they view as being a successful way to work. No, I agree. I think, you know, value is something that to me, both a buyer and a seller have. You don't enjoy your own value. Somebody else does, right? So I think oftentimes, you know, A, as you suggested, sellers don't understand the value they bring to a situation because they don't truly understand what the the customer's needs are relative to what they have to offer. They certainly don't understand sometimes what their value is relative to their competition, which is incredibly important to know. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, you know, on the procurement side, oftentimes procurement organizations have no idea of the many sources of value that they bring a seller. I mean, could it be in promotion? Could it be in simply making them a better supplier by, you know, holding their feet to the fire sometimes? I mean, those are all valuable things that a 
buyer brings to the party sometimes uh, are not uh, fully recognized. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a good point. And Marty, you spent probably two thirds of your career on the selling and, and marketing side of the house and then moved to procurement probably for what the last decade or so. What was the surprise when you walked into your first procurement role? What surprised you about it um, in terms of either how it was done or, or what they did or didn't know? What were the big ahas? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big ahas was that I, I knew a lot about selling. I knew all these processes and how to understand value and strategic accounts, et cetera, et cetera. But what I just didn't know was what procurement folks did, what they thought about the language of procurement, you know, category plans and category management and, uh, you know, when you use a bid and when you don't, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, one thing that's very true of procurement that I, I figured out right away is procurement people have a lot more stuff to keep up with, typically, than a salesperson. A salesperson has one product line they're selling, typically. A procurement, particularly a category manager, has a dozen different commodities they're overseeing, which have nothing to do with each other. And so they simply have a lot more to keep up with. One thing I realized early on is that, to me, everyone's always selling. I never differentiated. One party's selling you know, goods for money. The other party's selling money for goods. Ultimately, we all sell and procurement people spend a lot of time selling internally, as do salespeople spend a lot of time selling internally, which is a really good skill to get what they need done, basically. So, yeah, it's a and I've learned there's a lot of mysteries between the two. They just don't salespeople have perceptions about procurement people, procurement people perceptions about salespeople, some of them not very good, and they just don't understand each other. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good segue. So, I mean, that's one of the things that you're focusing on right now. And I know I think you did in the latter part of your your time at Exxon is really helping companies and commercial leaders demystify procurement and demystify sales. So what do you mean by demystifying? And what's the actual mystery here that we're talking about? One thing I did actually all through my career is I've written stuff down. I've just written lots of stuff down about things I realized that are true. And I've, I've sort of kept up with these things. So, you know, I wasn't sales and marketing. I wrote down a lot of things about, you know, how to deal with you know, commercial matters. And so one thing I think is very important is that I think it's very important for people to spend a little bit of time in both procurement and sales because you, you learn a little bit from, from each other. I just don't think that, again, salespeople understand the processes that procurement people go through and that procurement people understand the processes that salespeople go through. And since we're all, as I said earlier, selling to the degree that you can understand what the other person across the desk is going through, then you can help influence that process if you understand the process. If you can influence the process better than the other party can, then that gives you a leg up on either getting or maintaining the business. How do you understand the process, Marty? Because I think this this continues to be a mystery. So, you know, maybe can you share some of your insights or maybe even your model that when you think about kind of the whole demystification of this and, and how to figure out procurement's looking for? Yeah. For instance, one thing is just do a procurement job for a while. That's, that's the easiest thing. But, but just ask questions, right? I always find that, you know, people ultimately like to talk about what they do and they like to talk about themselves, right? So a lot of it's just asking questions. I mean, for instance, a question I would always ask somebody when I was in sales or procurement, you know, what do I need to do to make you a hero? It's a good question, right? It's an open-ended question. And people will then begin to, to divulge and talk a bit about, well, you know, if you could do this, it would really help. And I would say, well, you know, why is that? Or what are the processes you have to use to get this thing done? A lot of it's just asking questions and just showing interest in the person across the desk and showing them that, look, I got a job to do here. I need to 
get the sale or buy the thing, right? At the same time, we're going to be doing this thing for a while together. Let's try to help each other out a bit. There's nothing, just absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. That's something I think got very good at over the years. It's interesting, Marty, because I think when I was early in commercial roles, I thought it was a, you know, kind of a win-lose situation, so to speak, right? You know, so that, that it was a competition. So for me to get the best deal or you were in competition to get yourself the best deal. And yet, you know, over time you realize, one, but you're doing business with this company for a very long time and with these individuals for a very long time, for decades in some cases, right? You're not buying a car, you know? No, it's like, oh, exactly. You know. Yeah. And and so figuring out that whole cooperation and collaboration and s- still being true to what your your remit is for your company, right? Not losing sight of what's important and in, in who you're working for and how you make your company successful. But together, you can come up with better solutions if you have a bit more transparency and a bit more collaboration and asking some of these questions to understand that. Well, it's like it's, it's like salespeople and procurement people are playing. I'm dating myself here, but the game Battleship, right? Remember Battleship? Oh yeah. You had your little screen, and they you move a pen, and they move a pen, and you know you sink the other guy's ship or whatever. But there's a lot of that, that goes on, and frankly, it's just inefficient. I mean, as a salesperson, you think about the amount of time you spend trying to understand the organization, how they make decisions, what their needs are, you know, all these kinds of things that you need to do to develop your value offer. And to bring to bear the best of what your company can offer the customer, if they would just tell you that, (laughs) as opposed to making you hunt around for it all the time, it would make things a lot more efficient. And I think you mentioned earlier about being more transparent. You got to build up, obviously, trust with people, right? And and trust is the is really the fulcrum of which any you know collaborative type uh, business has to go. I think that's an an art form that some people can do really well is to build and maintain trust. And with trust, you think about how many mitigations you put in place in a contract or whatever to avoid risks. But if you trust somebody, if you trust the other company and you you know they're not going to do bad to you, then you don't have to have all that expensive stuff. You don't have to have all that inventory or all those extra things that cost money because you trust the other party. It really drives down cost, actually. Trust and cost, are they offset each other. And that's also part of the value equation. I know you and I have talked about kind of where value is created in commercial relationships, whether from a supplier side or a seller side. And, you know, reducing friction is one of those things, creating more certainty. And with that certainty is trust, right? That that it holds a lot of weight, right? That in a negotiation, you might think you have the best deal, the best offer. If the counterparty can't trust that you're going to deliver and do the same, the things that you're promising to do, you may or may not win the deal. Or it comes with a lot more handcuffs, so to speak, and provisions to make it more guarded. As a seller, you know, you said there were certainty, having certainty that you're going to have a stream of business for the next you know, a few years or whatever, means a lot, right? That's one less thing you have to worry about. And so sometimes, you know, giving commitment, which is there's risk involved, right? But that's actually worth a lot. And in some cases, if you've got a a supplier who is your favorite anyway, and you're probably going to try to buy for them anyway, giving them a commitment based on the trust that you have developed between the two of you is essentially an elegant negotiable. It didn't cost you anything to do that. But to them, it gave them certainty. It gave them surety of business. And they can go to their boss and say, look, I got their business for the next three years. And be a hero. It made them a hero. Exactly. This whole relationship thing, I think, is on three levels always. Say, There's the industry level, 
Certain industries have a personality. Each company has a personality and a certain set of things they're trying to, to do. And finally, the individuals you're dealing with have their own needs. You have to look at these relationships on three levels. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. I used to map. I mean, I still do today, but mapping out where the individual needs are versus the company needs versus what's going on in the industry is really critical because it helps you be creative and finding solutions that work. So what was the most challenging or fun negotiation that you faced? Oh, the one you and I did, Victoria. Come on. Is it? Oh, well, thanks, Marty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fun. <laughs> that was a very long. I think what was fun about that one is I was new in the job and I didn't really know what I was doing. But with the help of my colleagues, I had, we had a really strong team. And, and that's what that was thrilling about those kinds of, of selling jobs is, you know, I said earlier, I like to be an individual contributor. But in, in the case of licensing, it was a team approach. Right. And so, you know, I was kind of the quarterback, but then I had really good technical people who understood the products, marketing, et cetera. And, you know, it was just a fun thing to do. I think probably one of the funnest ones I had was, you know, just basically going out to a potential client that everybody says they're never going to use our technology. And over a period of a few years and a lot of negotiating and a lot of trips and and a lot of strange meals in Asia, we got the business. And it was something that you just did from the ground up. It was, there was nothing, because a lot of selling in the chemical space, frankly, is repeat selling, relationship maintaining. So I think you asked the question, what's the funnest thing? I think getting a new client on board for a major project, everybody says it's not going to happen, is was thrilling. The other thing is I find thrilling is that, you know, you, you have these customers and accounts where their relationship is just screwed up, right? Something, something went wrong. Someone sideways, there's a lot of lack of trust. Is something I was pretty good at over over time was rebuilding trust and rebuilding a relationship. That's a thrilling thing to do. And usually it's just a misunderstanding. It's not that people did something wrong. You just say, but you rebuild it. And that's always, I found to be a fun thing to do. That is, that's fun. And it's critical, especially, you know, I think about, as you say that, you know, these relationships are long. And I think about even, you know, my time at Shell, my time at Clarion, some of the longstanding uh, customer supplier relationships we had that were broken at times. And yet neither party could actually afford for them to be broken because you need each other, right? You- and some of these don't even know why they're broken. Well, I don't know. Something happened a few years, you know, six years ago. And well, what was it? Nobody remembers, you know? <laughs> it was a prior business leader, prior people in the role, you know, a misunderstanding. Let me say one more thing about trust. We're talking yeah, go about. ahead. No, 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 please. Along those lines, occasionally, and that just happens every once in a while, you run across a person who just has bad character. They just do, okay? That's going to make a mess of things, right? It's going to happen, right? And so, and so you got to be real careful with trusting those people, but you're going to run across them every once in a while rarely, but you're going to run across them. And sometimes you have to do business with those people. Yeah. How do you deal with that, Marty? I'm still learning sometimes. Give me the Marty wisdom. I had uh, generally what I tried to do, at least in the, in the selling role, and actually in the procurement role as well, simply work around them. I had this thing, I, I, I called it lighting fires. It was my, my little terminology, but I would work with the technology person, the manufacturing person, the finance person, whoever, and build my case with all these other people, right? And then the particular individual could it be procurement or whatever who was not worthy of trust. Well, suddenly they just had to do what I wanted them to do, you know. So you you basically sold around them, and that irritates some people. But he's not dealing fairly to start with. So I'm sorry I made you upset. <laughs> but anyway, interesting. Usually those people don't last very long. Anyway, they're usually gone. 
That's right. I mean, you know, they're the ones maybe that bounce from place to place or just move out of a commercial role because they're not suited necessarily. People figure them out pretty soon, you know? Yeah. Interesting. So in your final role at Exxon, ExxonMobil, you advised commercial staff on strategies for negotiations and commercial opportunities. And Marty, I know that that was a role that you kind of created, right? You lobbied to create that role and make it happen and get yourself in that position. Why? Maybe is one question. And then what do you see as the benefit of doing that for either for yourself or for other late career professionals? Well, in the case of my ex-employer from which I retired, they already do this sort of thing in other parts of the company and technology. The upstream had a really good system of, we called them identical professionals, basically. And so, yeah, in some of the commercial roles, though, it wasn't as strong. And so I, in procurement, I said, why don't we, and we had some people already in place, but I said, in my case, I'm going to retire pretty soon. I know all this stuff. Why don't we put a, a position in place to, that I can use all that information, all that knowledge to put in place, you know, better processes, expectations, do mentoring, training, et cetera. And so, you know, I, we started it. Unfortunately, the pandemic occurred, which uh, in a sense called upon my talents a bit more perhaps, but it worked out well. It's just we people were in uncharted territory, right? And I think, you know, one thing that I always would tell some other colleagues who were of my uh, level of experience, I'd say, look, one thing you may have noticed is you walk into a completely jacked up situation and you know exactly what to do within a few minutes of asking a few questions you just know what to do the trick is then to to help the other people get to that point without telling them what to do you sort of lead them there and they learn the thought process they learn how to frame up the issue throw out the extraneous information that doesn't matter how to get to the core thing that's going to have the most leverage to affect the issue and i think that is that's something that you learn in time but that's also something you can impart to people who are less far along in their career, that they can get a, a leg up, basically, to be able to do that earlier on. I think it was a great thing they did. We And they went ahead and named some more positions similar to mine. And uh, I think it's a great way to, to sort of build skill in the organization. It's also a way to pass things along generationally, which to me is a real important thing now as we're going through this, the great resignation. People are coming and going. And organizations are losing organizational knowledge and wisdom. And so how do you maintain that, right? You just can't put stuff on SharePoints. You have to have a person or people who are keepers of the flame, so to speak. And I think these kinds of roles can help uh, can help do that. Yeah, that's interesting. In fact, it, it makes me think of, you know, we, we talk about cultures that have a written history versus an oral history, right? And storytelling. And the reality is, I think, for business roles and commercial roles and others, you have to have the combination of the two, right? So you can write this stuff down, but then it leaves it to the individual to interpret. And you interpret based on your own lens and experience, right? But when you have the coaching, the mentoring, the sage helping you understand what it means, you get the best of both worlds. It's the lyrics and the music, right? It's, it's both coming together. I like, uh, I always encourage people to put together good strategies because strategies, once you have one, you can then, you know, adjust it as time goes on. That's an important thing I find that a lot of people don't understand the importance of or even what a strategy is. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I know we've talked about the fact that yeah, I think you've got your own kind of maybe framework on strategy. What is a strategy or why don't people understand it? And what do you think is, you know, when you start talking about putting together a commercial strategy, what does that look like? A lot of people, they stop at the goals or the objectives or, or they put together a plan, right? But 
and they, they stop there. They, we got a strategy. I've seen this all over the industry. It's not, not one company in particular, but I think, you know, strategies have to start with, to me, a set of objectives or goals that are time-based. We want to be here in X number of years, but then you recognize there are problems that prevent you be an issue for you getting there. And so a strategy then is all about how do you going to address those issues, those roadblocks that are going to prevent you from meeting your objectives. And then strategy then also lays out who's going to do what, when, where, how, and then finally what we're not going to do. And then how we know we've won. To me, those are the elements of a strategy. And a strategy is it's a cyclical thing. You start it, you you work it, and then you improve it, and then you go on and on. And that's the good thing about having one. So once you have one, you can build that as a basis for doing better. So to me, that's the element, that's the understanding, my understanding of strategy. Yeah. And you would help people build the strategies around, uh, you know, products or markets or what, when you think about that? You could say it's a strategy around the whole business in a sense, the whole business goal, or it's a strategy around how we're going to, we want to grow our position in a market segment and, or if we want to grow our position in a, with a certain customer, or if we want to grow our position with a certain supplier, that's, you could build one around any number of things. To me, a strategy ultimately gets built around what I tend to call the X axis. Usually it's the one thing that has the most leverage that is going to help you get and meet those objectives. And again, those obstacles are the things that prevent you from using that leverage. And how are you going to work around them or through them to meet your objectives? That's the strategy. Awesome. That's interesting. So Marty, you've left the hallowed grounds of ExxonMobil and you're moving on kind of maybe to the next phase of life and career. What's your focus here for the future? So I've had a few months of, of rest. I had, a, I think I told you I had a, some knee surgery. So that uh, laid me low for a bit, but I'm, I'm really interested in getting back into helping companies do things better in terms of their sales ability, their procurement ability, their marketing ability, their ability to, of developing good strategies. So I've, I've been over the past uh, few months now talking to people in the industry like yourself to understand, you know, what's, what's needed out there, trying to get some, some ideas about how, what I know I could try to apply elsewhere. And so I'm, I'm literally right now in the midst of forming a little consultancy. I'm calling it Marty Levine Commercial. I didn't get real creative on the naming, but that's really what I'd like to do because I just I just find this thrilling uh, to try to help people do a better job at being what I said earlier, being the tip of the spear. I think that's awesome. I think you're going to do really well at that. You're also involved in ISM. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. So one thing, I was in ISM a bit before I retired and pandemic kind of messed things up. But I've actually been invited back by them here in the Houston chapter to help in kind of an advisory capacity. So I've really just started that. I think it's a good organization. I think, you know, it's important, particularly for sort of younger employees to get involved in this sort of thing, because it helps them see what the companies are up to, helps people benchmark. It helps you build a network, frankly. It's good to be involved again. That's good. And for those that don't know what ISM is? It's an institute of supply management. Yeah. Procurement and supply chain focused. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tends to be a little more heavy on procurement as best as I can tell. But. Awesome. So Marty, what advice would you give to a new college grad or a young in career person that's entering a commercial role in chemicals? Good question. I think, you know, I got to say when, when I got into this commercial role, I was kind of like, you're going to go do this. Right. And so a lot of these questions I hadn't really thought about. So again, the benefit of, of age has allowed me to come up with a few things that sort of work. I think first off, it's don't be willing to be both on the buying and the selling side. Some people are just want to be salespeople, but you really ought to try procurement for a bit. And some people just want to be procurement people, try selling for a bit. 
you understand, again, you demystify the other party. You make yourself a better buyer or seller, whichever one you happen to be. Spend some time in the, op- in the operations of your company. Understand the how the value of the things that you're selling, how they're made, or how the things you're buying are being used and what's important. Because if you're in procurement jobs, because you have all these things you've got to oversee, you got to be able to prioritize and figure out where the most bang for the buck is. I think, you know, deliberately build a network. So we mentioned outfits like ISM are a good way of doing that. Be open about training and mentorship. And I would say boldly seek it out. In my last position, I had a few uh, early career people who actively sought me out. And it was great because I really enjoyed working with them. Very smart, intelligent, capable people. It speaks well for them that they want to do better. I think, you know, the other thing I always tell people is be yourself. In commercial roles, you have to be yourself. If you try to be somebody else, then people are going to see that you're not being genuine. You're basically lying. You won't be trusted. So I, for many years, tried to be somebody else. And irritating as Marty can be, I decided just to be Marty. And I did a lot better after that. Figure out your own style. Figure out what you're good at and try to do more of it. You can work on your weaknesses all day long. And some of them you'll never get better. I'll never be a good golfer. (laughs) I've tried. (laughs) So, I mean, I've tried. But there's some things I'm really good at. And so I tried to find opportunities to do those things a lot. And I think that's a a good way to live. If you want to get an advanced degree, do it early (laughs) before you get mortgages and kids and things like that to to deal with. And then finally, you know a bit about me, you know, don't live to work, work to live. Have some interest outside of work for crying out loud. A lot of people I, I see don't have that. I've always had a lot of them. As you know, my wife and I have a an art business on the side. I do photography. I do astronomy. I like to read. I like to write. And all those things make you a better professionally because oftentimes you just can't work something out at work. And when you're goofing around with a camera or whatever, you get the solution. Sometimes you have to get offline to get the solution. So anyway, have a, have a life outside of work. That's awesome. Well, Marty, thank you. This has been great. I'm glad uh, we got a chance to connect and get to record our conversation. We've had many conversations, so it's fun to actually memorialize it. And thanks for joining us on A Chemical Show. I'd love to do it again sometime. Thank you. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. Keep liking, following, and sharing the podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.